The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, one of the things that I've loved about the study of Ecclesiastes is how much it has resonated with our body. If, if I have been told it once, I've been told it a thousand times since we started, that this has been great studying Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is incredibly, uh, I don't know what the word would be, relevant. Uh, it's, it's, it feels like it's very fresh and speaks to our situation and speaks to our experience. We've said that the governing metaphor kind of all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is hevel. Now, hevel is the Hebrew word that's sometimes translated meaningless, sometimes it's translated vanity. What we've said is the best uh, translation of that word, what we've chosen to use, is vapor. That life is like vapor. It eludes our grasp. It's gone before we can even wrap our minds around it. And it's, everything's sort of veiled. Everything's through a mist or through a fog. And over and over again, the author tells us everything is hevel. I, I, not only have I been encouraged by how much... Uh, how well the body has resonated with the study of Ecclesiastes. I've also found, uh, you know, when, like if you get a Ford Explorer and you're driving down the interstate, you all of a sudden start seeing lots of Ford Explorers kind of around, um, I'm, you know, that sort of dynamic. I'm sort of seeing Ecclesiastes everywhere I go. You know, I don't, I don't know if this is because, you know, 15 hours a week or whatever, you know, we're studying and, and prepping to teach through Ecclesiastes, but I feel like I'm seeing it everywhere. You know, for instance, I was listening to this podcast, um, one of my favorite podcasts, and it featured an interview with this author and academic, and he wrote this book recently called The Malaise of the Midlife, and he talked about how when he turned 35, which I'm just a few weeks out from turning 35 himself, that this malaise kind of set in, this like kind of, uh, malaise is, is like another word for like a kind of a gray discontent that sort of settles over everything. He said that when he was you know, a 20-something, and he was pursuing this career. He had his nose to the grindstone, and he was working really hard, and he was, he was kind of working to achieve the next thing. And then when he arrived in his field, he turned about 35 years old, he kind of looked up and realized, like, huh, I, I guess this is what life is going to be. I guess this is kind of what the thing is about. I loved specifically what he said about his experience here. He said that he arrived at his position, he got tenure, and he had this puzzling realization even though he was teaching, he's a moral philosopher and ethicist, even though he's teaching stuff that feels like it would be really, really meaningful, he found himself bored. Bored and distraught by the monotony of just teaching this set of students, and then they move on, and then he teaches this next set of students, and then they move on, and then he writes this article, and it's published, and then he writes this other article, and it's published, and he's like, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing until I die. It's like, for me, I sort of resonated with that, because every Sunday, and I've already mentioned, you know, studying 15 hours a week of a, of a book of the Bible to come present it, I come present it, and then the alarm wakes up on Monday morning, and it's like, it's time to start prepping for next week's sermon, I guess. There's a sort of gray monotony that kind of settles over our lives. The preacher says, it's all hevel. Something I love what this guy said, this academic, was, he, he actually asked this question. He, he, he said, what does it all add up to at the end of the day? So that's the, sort of the, uh, the, the source of the discontent. It's like, what, what is it all amounting to at the end of the day? Or to use the language of Ecclesiastes, what gain is there in all of our toil? That's it. That's the thing that each of us experience in our own ways. Now, Ecclesiastes is a message from one we've called the preacher. 
Uh, the word preacher comes from this kind of mysterious Hebrew word kohelet, which means something like the leader of an assembly or a shepherd. And we've just used preacher sort of as a, a simple fill-in for that. Uh, the preacher wants to care for us. He wants to shepherd God's people by bursting their bubbles and by breaking the news to them that all of the things that we pursue are ultimately hevel. And that we've got to have something outside of the hevel to ground us and give us substance and meaning. The preacher has all kinds of experiences. He's got access to every opportunity, every book, everything you can think of. Wine, women, wisdom, work. And he comes back and he reports his finding. All of it is hevel. Naked we come, naked we go. And along the way, he tells us that there are all sorts of threats to meaning that you and I experience. There's the monotony of life, which we've already covered. The clocking in and clocking out day after day after day. The dishes and diapers every day for what feels like thousands of years. There's the veiled nature of things, that things just happen and there seems to be no rhyme or rhythm. There's the inability that we have to sort of wrap our brains around the shape of life. There's the reality of time and death, that life marches forward with no regard for us. In chapter one, generation comes and generation goes, and what's going to be left standing? Nothing. And the result is a kind of malaise and discontent that we all experience. Thus far, we've seen that the only responses that we have is, is to one, to see and name the hevel for what it is, for us to just kind of be given permission to look at the frustrating things of life and just say, hevel, that's hevel. What's crooked can't be made straight, it's hevel. Gives us a category, some permission to, 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 to name the discontent that we experience. He also invites us to enjoy the good gifts of God for the short period of time we have to enjoy them. We said like snow in South Carolina, it comes and then it's gone as soon as it gets here. And the, the proper response is to enjoy it for the brief moment that we have to receive it. In chapter 3 he says one of the important responses that we have to the hevel is to actually do good. Because the first thing to go, kind of reflecting on that, I mean, when we feel discontented about life and we feel frustrated at the state of things, the first thing that we ax is often doing good for our neighbor. And he, he says, don't let the, the challenges to meaning that we experience crowd out doing good, living in community, embracing community, as Aaron showed us last week. Now these things, it would be wrong for us to say that these things fix our experience of heaven. Instead, the, the preacher wants us to see that they are only the, the responses that keep us sane, kind of in an experience of being boxed in by the vapor. Now, our chapter today, today comes on the heels of last week, where the preacher sort of turned his attention to the horizontal nature of life, that we were built for community, that there's futility in living for ourselves, and we should live for others, as Aaron shared last week. Now, on our passage this week, it's a little bit difficult to make sense of what exactly the preacher's doing here, sort of in the, the grand scheme of the book. We have this acknowledgement in verses 8 and 9 about uh, the reality of evil and oppression in the world. It's the third time in as many chapters that he's made mention of the reality of evil and oppression in the world. But then he has these almost, I don't know, parabolic sayings, these exhortations around uh, our approach to worship. So tonight, we're going to try and make sense and see what the author is sort of intending to do by collecting these two things, these two exhortations here together. And we're going to, we're going to go backwards. We're going to start in verses 8 and 9 and then turn our attention to verses 1 through 7. All right, let's look at verse 8. The preacher says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of righteousness and justice, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed 
to cultivated fields. All right, now this is a little bit of a challenging bit of scripture. It's a little challenging to understand, but I think we can ultimately make sense of the, the overarching exhortation that he is offering us here. The important piece, the important takeaway is that when we see oppression and the lapse of justice, don't be amazed. It's like, that's what things are like under the sun. That's hevel. When you see oppression and the violation of righteousness and justice, don't marvel at it. The King James says, marvel not. Don't marvel at it. Don't be amazed. But the second half of verses 8 and 9 are a little bit challenging. There's one way to read it where he says and there in verse 8, don't be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. He could be saying that thankfully there's accountability structures in place. That one official is overseen by another official and so there's limits to how far and how deep the oppression can go. That's one reading there. But the Hebrew is not entirely clear. It could also mean the exact opposite of that. He could also be saying that oppression seems to layer on itself. That you have these higher-ups who protect those who are exploiting those who are under them. The injustice is permitted and protected by the leaders themselves like a whole rotten system. This actually seems to fit with his reflections in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. When he says that on the side of the oppressors is power. In other words, on the side of the oppressors is more oppression. Similarly, in verse 9, he says that it's gain in every way for the land for the king to be committed to cultivating fields. It's like, on the one hand, we could read it that he's saying that at least a greedy king is generating wealth and jobs. You know, he's emphasizing production. At least there's that. That's one reading. Or he could be commenting on how sometimes things are so oppressive and broken that even kings, even kings are devoted to selfish gain. Either way, however we read this passage, the point is clear. The preacher is telling us, don't be amazed when you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Don't be amazed. In chapter 3, 16, he says, in the place of righteousness, he sees wickedness. He ought to look and see goodness, but instead he sees evil. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, he says, he looks out and sees the tears of the oppressed, and there's no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressors is more power. And then he concludes that it's better to have never been born than have to see this. And then again in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed when, when in the land of heaven you see oppression and a violation of justice. Now, is it just me or does that seem, I don't know, amazing itself? Like the, the fact that the preacher would tell us to look at these evils underlined bold evils and he says don't be amazed it's like sometimes we come across things that are so atrocious and so evil that amazing is is the right descriptor for it it's like the the audacity of the perpetrators and the scope of the evil is so bad that amazement is the thing that we we feel in response to that and yet the king james Marvel not at the matter. Have you heard about the Uyghurs in China? Have you heard about sex trafficking and sexual abuse? Have you heard about unjust COVID measures? Have you heard about income disparity between black and white Americans? Have you heard about people being unjustly accused of crimes they didn't commit? On and on and on we could go. It's like, what evil haven't we heard about? And the preacher says, don't be amazed at the matter. 
And what is the preacher telling us here? Is he, is he encouraging a kind of cynicism? Is he encouraging like a, like an, I don't know, like a, like a battered or embittered, resentful, like disengagement from the evils of this world? Is this a call to like plug your ears and be indifferent and ambivalent to the suffering of others? I don't think that's the case. I mean, we have scriptures like James 1.27, a very familiar passage which says, pure and undefiled religion is this, that we visit orphans and widows in their affliction and we keep ourselves unstained from the world. Right? So whatever he's saying, he's not, he's not violating scriptures like James chapter 1. I think the best way to understand this is that Ecclesiastes is in many ways about our limits, our limits in the land of heaven. We are limited. There is no transcending our mortality and our bodies and our situations. We are finite creatures. We are bound to space and time. And the author of Ecclesiastes communicates this to us to help us temper our expectations. There's just a ceiling on how good things are going to be this side of eternity. This is a fallen world. Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Have you ever tried to do renovations in an old house? It's like the place refuses to cooperate, right? It's like that's sort of the, the same dynamic. It's like life under the sun is like, it's like trying to renovate a, a busted up old house. Like there's limits to how straight we can get this thing. So we cannot be amazed at a fallen world that behaves like a fallen world. As if it's a good world that God created out of an abundance of his goodness that we have corrupted. It's like we, we can't, or takeaway from that can't be to marvel and to be amazed at that the preacher would say. Don Carson is a, is a, 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 a lecturer at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I remember listening to him teach on 1 Timothy one time, and something that stuck with me is he talked about our response to sin. As he said that we should be disgusted and we should be horrified, but we should never be surprised. We should never marvel or be amazed at evil because the world is fallen, fallen and things are not as they ought to be. Now, I think what makes this uniquely challenging for our time and place is I've listed just a few of the things that we are deeply and painfully aware of. Just a few of the things, like a handful of the things that are really wrong with our fallen world. It's like, what evil don't we know about? Because it sure feels like I've got a good sense of all that's happening that's wrong everywhere. It's like, I would love some ignorance at this point, if you, if you get what I'm saying. On and on we could go about all of these big, ugly evils in the world. And because of our media ecology, our media environment, we might say, we don't just see a province, we see all provinces at all times, and we see all kinds of oppressions and all breeds of violation of all kinds of justice everywhere we look 24-7. We are so aware of all the time of all of the things that are messed up in the world. I was reading, uh, there's this, this guy named Neil Postman, uh, he talks about something called the information action ratio. Are you familiar with this idea, the information action ratio? And the postman was writing in the 1980s, and he was speaking about the invention of the telegraph, which is kind of cute now. Like it's, it's like adorable. That was such a big deal, like now that Twitter is a thing. This is what Neil Postman said. I thought this was really helpful. I have it on the screen. He said, prior to the age of telegraphy, the information action ratio was sufficiently close so that most people had a sense of being able to control some of the contingencies in their lives. He's saying that there's a ratio between what info we get and what we can do about it. And prior to the advent of things like the telegraph, it was reasonably close. It was like we could act on the stuff that we heard about. He said what people knew had action value. But then 
In the information world created by telegraphy, this sense of potency was lost precisely because the whole world became context for news. Everything became everyone's business. We see all provinces at all times, and we see all kinds of oppressions and violations of righteousness and justice everywhere we look. For the first time, we were sent information which answered no question which we had asked and which, in any case, did not permit the right of reply. Isn't that, again, like, it's like, that's so cute, Neil, you know, back in the 1980s. He says that when the information action ratio is way out of whack, when the info is bigger than our ability to reasonably do something about it, we feel either totally frustrated and outraged or crushed. Like, this is almost 30 years before social media, and our media climate has exacerbated this to impossible and paralyzing degrees. And here's what I think we should do. We should see the wisdom in limiting the stuff that we intake. Ecclesiastes 1.18. This is a scripture for our time. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There are some things that are worse than ignorance. I think an important takeaway for us is to ask ourselves, what would it look like to care for our heart and soul by limiting what we take in? Be that news or podcasts or social media, whatever that is for you by limiting the stuff that we intake. Because the amount of stuff in the world that we can control is minuscule. And we've said that a constant refrain throughout Ecclesiastes is that in the fear of the Lord, we are to enjoy good things, and chapter three, verse 12, do good. That we are called to do something about the evils that we see, but we can't do good about all of the evils that we're always seeing at all times. There's, there's a limiting of scope here that I think the preacher would have us to embrace. Do what good you can in the place that the Lord has put you. And listen, don't let yourself be crushed by the evil we see. And the hope of God and the fear of the Lord, not a cynical or or embittered response, but with firm confidence that the judge of the earth will do right. And that he will make everything beautiful in its time. There's just some things we have to entrust that the Lord will sort out. Now in the context of this acknowledgement of evil. Just prior to this, we're given, you know, honestly, what's, what's a little bit of a, a difficult set of exhortations. It reads almost proverbially. This is most direct commands that we've been given so far in the book. Last week, he talked about the, the horizontal elements of uh, caring for one another. Here, he turns his attention to that which is vertical, we might say, dealing with our relation to God. And I think that they do fit together. We'll get to that in a second. Let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. The preacher writes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than, the, than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now a Jewish temple, particularly in the day that the preacher is writing, was doggone impressive. It's a large structure. You know, imagine you know nothing of the God of the Bible and you stumble upon the temple that's described in the scriptures. It's like just gigantic. There's no, there's no uh, statues in the middle of it. It's just like all of this space. If we were to stumble upon that and we didn't know anything about the God of the Bible, what would we conclude about this God? This is a big, big 
big God, right? My international travel is not extensive, but I've at least been able to visit a couple of countries around the world. Been to Europe and South America. And one of my favorite things to do in these trips, if you've been internationally, is to go look at historic churches. Have you ever seen like a centuries-old cathedral in Europe? It's amazing. I have a picture on the screen. This comes from a a cathedral that we saw in Peru back in 2019. We had a team go to Peru to work with an organization called Food for the Hungry. And a part of the time that we spent down there, we went sightseeing in Lima. And this is the picture of one of the cathedrals there. Like, I don't even know why you take pictures of this because it doesn't, you know, do any kind of justice to the experience of standing before something that incredibly beautiful. Christians across the centuries have like broken ground when it comes to engineering and architectural design and building these things. We're talking extreme, intense attention to detail, building cathedrals and churches and places of worship that are just unbelievable, just totally immaculate. The question is, like, the Christians that have preceded us that have done that, what are they trying to evoke in us? What What are they intending to do by building structures that look like this? They took decades to build They're expensive and expansive. What are they intending to call out of us in building structures like this? Even in our own church building, you walk in and the thing that strikes you immediately is a 30-foot vaulted wooden ceiling. Why on earth would we have a vaulted ceiling like that in our facility? In these structures, which are so big and powerful, one of the things that's also striking is you go in and they're made of surfaces that make your voice really resonant. If you've ever been in one of these cathedrals, it's like you can't speak without feeling, like, like literally feeling your voice reverberate off the walls. The feeling that you often get when you walk into a space like that is the need to be silent. It's a recognition that I'm walking into something that is bigger far more advanced, much bigger, (laughs) very impressive, and it makes me feel very, very small. And it's like, by speaking, I feel like I'm shattering some kind of important silence. These buildings are intended to show us that God is big, that he is unspeakably, unfathomably big, and we are small, that he is beautiful beyond words. And the right natural response in this space is is a kind of intuitive need to shut up. It's To let your words be few, right? Listen again to what he says. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. He's saying that God is big and that God is other than us. And that should, it has implications for the way that we approach God. We, we are people bound by heaven for crying out loud. Let's have a sense of proportion about ourselves. Let's have some humility. You know the word uh, humility and hummus have the same Latin root? It means like, in, like pertaining to the ground. Like learning humility is like learning that we are people of the ground. We are people of earth. We are earthbound and God is in heaven. God is distant and above and beyond and Jupiter making and we are not. And so he says, the proper takeaway from this is to let your words be few. Now, one question you might have here, as I was reflecting on, on this scripture, I couldn't help but think of other scriptures, like Hebrews chapter 10. What is Hebrews 10 and other places like that? How do they speak to our approach of God? What does it tell us? That we should approach God with boldness, with confidence. 
So how do we square scriptures like that, which command us to approach God in that way, with a scripture like Ecclesiastes 5, which says our words should be few when we approach God? I think I'd say two things to that. I'd say the first thing that I'd say to that is what is the grounds for the difference here present in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Like the thing that separates us from God in this scripture isn't our sinfulness. It's not our sin that creates a gap between us and God. He's saying that there is a fundamental distinction of being. Women in the theology class, we're talking about ontology, right? There is a, a fundamental difference between who and what God is and what we are. So Hebrews is talking about, look, sin has distanced us from God. That has been erased in Jesus, and we can now approach God on the basis of our sin being gone. What Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is saying is God is not like you. Therefore, have a sense of proportion about who this God is. I think that's the first thing that I would say. I actually forgot what the second thing I said would say is, so we'll continue. Uh, something else, uh, I'm sure it was great. Something else we're thinking about, uh, and Jonathan did so great in leading us. Every Sunday, we do a call to worship at the beginning of our service. Why is it that we do a call to worship? The answer is because we do not show up unannounced. God has invited us. It is God's initiative. We respond to God's call on us. We are called to his presence by the grace of the Lord Jesus. This weekly call to worship is a spiritual discipline that reminds us of our role in this story. We are the recipients, the hearers, the listeners. One commentator, in talking about this passage, mentioned this fantastic story from 1 Samuel. Uh, specifically, kind of working through what does it mean when he says it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. He used the example of the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Saul is commanded to destroy a city, but what does Saul do? He keeps back a portion of that which he has uh, 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 taken on behalf of the Lord, and he keeps back a portion, and in his mind, he thinks, God is going to love this. It's like, I know God told me not to take anything, but I'm taking these calves that are like fat and juicy, and we're going to enjoy some of it, and then we're going to offer some of that to the Lord, and surely the Lord is going to be blown away by this, you know, unexpected gift that we're providing for him. But the problem was, it wasn't obedience. We might say it was a sacrifice of fools. It was Saul going to God on Saul's terms, not really interested in obeying God so much as placating God, like trying to either get God off his back or get God into his pocket so that God would ultimately do his bidding. And this is what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel's like, do you really think what God wants is the fat of rams? Do you think God wants fattened calves? What God wants is you. What God wants is his people, and he wants obedience and attendance to his every word. God wants our open and available and heedful hearts before him. The preacher says, it is, it is better for us to come eager to listen, to open ourselves up, to attend to every word from God than to eagerly offer up sacrifices because it could be the sacrifice of fools, he's saying. Worship is first listening for God's people. It's approaching God with openness to God and what he has to say to us, not first what we say to him. And it's because God wants us, not, not our good deeds, he doesn't, he doesn't need our good deeds. He doesn't need our doings and actions and words. It's like if you're a happy, charismatic, or a grumpy, reform type, goodness, we love words. Words, 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 all the words, words all the time. We're always saying words. 
God wants us. He requires us. He wants enraptured, heedful, open-hearted, available people. You see this all over the prophets, particularly the opening chapter of Isaiah. He says the people are sort of hiding behind their obedience in order to shield themselves from actually loving God. Your lips are near to me, but your heart could not be further from me. It's a slippery, backhanded kind of obedience. And the preacher says, that's not what God's about. That is not what God wants from his people. Then the preacher zeroes in on specific kinds of sacrifice. Verse 4, a specific kind of sacrifice of fools. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Very similar to the prior section, this time the difference is that he's emphasizing the practice of vow making, which maybe feels foreign initially to us. But what he's speaking to is essentially this impulse to say, God, if you, if you do X for me, I promise I'll do Y. It's like, God, if you, if you I don't know, get this package here delivered by Friday because I really need it for like a presentation for work. If you get it delivered by Friday, I promise I'm not going to miss like an offering check for the next month. It's like what he's speaking to is that kind of impulse that maybe some of us in our lesser moments have been compelled to do. This is one of the areas in Ecclesiastes, one of the few areas where he's explicitly drawing on other scripture. Here he's referencing Deuteronomy 23. I have it on the screen. Deuteronomy 23. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. The first thing to note here is that vows are optional. We don't have to do them. Secondly, if we do do them, God will not treat them lightly. And so the preacher says, we better tread lightly with our speech before God, particularly making promises to him. I've heard it both attributed to Mark Twain and Lisa Simpson, but the quote, uh, better to be thoughtful than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Like that's, that's sort of what the preacher is commending of God's people here. Now this is a bit of a puzzling passage. Sometimes... Ecclesiastes doesn't always feel like it flows, and this is one of those areas. Like, what's the connection here with Hevel, the central idea of the book? Like, what is he intending to do by collecting these two uh, bits of teaching here together, and in particular, talking about our approach to God and worship? I think there's an important lesson we can glean here when thinking about worship in the land of Hevel. Like, think about it. In a world that's limited and ever-changing and subject to decay, when things don't go the way you want them to go, when we are, we're people who are hevel, who are subject to decay and death, who rightfully worship a God over and above the hevel, what might be our temptation when it comes to approaching God? What is our tendency when things are hard and frustrating, or even when we see injustice, violence, and oppression in the world? I think we might be tempted to offer the sacrifice of fools that Saul commits in 1 Samuel 15 to worship and obey in order to really get God to do something for us. To win God to my cause, to get on God's good graces, to get him to fix something for me. I suspect the preacher is heading off a tendency that that we have 
that if we do good stuff, if we can impress God or jump through the appropriate hoops, then he is obligated to do something about our situation. That he is obligated to do something about our experience of heaven. When we experience wrongdoing and see wrongdoing, we might be tempted to think that if, if, if we can win sort of God to sort of apply his attention to me and get him to like the stuff that I'm doing for him, maybe, just maybe, he'll fix my situation. I've been reading Job this week, and Job's knuckleheaded friends, Eliphaz and Job chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Job, don't you know that those who are innocent, those who are innocent of sin, they don't suffer, They, they aren't perishing because of that? So surely, Job, you brought all of this on yourself. So Job, if you just did better, like me, God wouldn't afflict you with the things that he's afflicted you with. There's a, like a, a human tendency for us to think that the reason that I'm experiencing hevel is because I haven't jumped through the appropriate hoops for God. But I think what the preacher wants to do is, is to, to head that off for us. That if we assume that if we do God, God, do good, rather God will give us good, that we can sort of get an angle on the hevel by being in God's good graces, he says, that's not how it works. This is not how the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ operates. We don't obey to get leverage on God. God doesn't need or want our obedience first and foremost. What he wants is us. He wants listening ears and receptive hearts. God demands from us wholehearted, available, bare, open hearts before him to his immensity and to his towering kindness to us in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 5, he says, When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. God wants us before him, in awe of him, marveling, not at the evil and injustice we see, but marveling at who he is. What God demands of us, his people, is trust. I think the unifying center of this chapter, this, these nine verses, is that of fear. What is it we fear ultimately? Who will we fear? Who will we marvel at? What will we be amazed by? Is it stuff that we see hemmed in under the hevel? Or is it the one who is above and beyond it, who sends his son Jesus for us? We have a vantage point that the preacher could not have imagined. God himself taking on flesh. And John 1.18 says that the son has exegeted the father for us. He has made the father known for us. And so we look at Jesus, we see God. And the God, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, will not he do right for us? Can we not trust this God? Is not everything that this God ordains right for us and good for us? Even in our experience of heaven, can we not trust this God who is above and beyond it? The one who can shepherd the wind. God is the one we must fear. We can trust that he will do right, that he loves us by the making his love available to us through the Son. My encouragement for us tonight, though we may see all sorts of evil and wrongdoing, is to look to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, who sent his Son for us. You want to know how God feels about you? Look at Christ. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, said, we have this tendency to see God's love for us through our circumstances. My circumstances are bad, therefore God must not, not feel good about me. 
God must be disappointed with me. He said that's exactly backwards. We're to look at our circumstances through the lens of God's love for us. The things that we're experiencing come from the hand of the Father of the Lord Jesus. Could we receive them in fear and confidence and and openness and availability to him? Just a few moments we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? A song that feels so fitting to this scripture. God is worthy of all of our adoration and all of our worship. He sits enthroned above the heavens. The song invites us. It's a call and response. It invites us. Is there anyone worthy? And we can rest with a deep sigh of relief and we can say, He is. God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in response to Jesus coming to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as Jesus, our Lord and Savior, taught us to pray. We come acknowledging that we, that we are earthbound and that you are God of gods above all things. We pray that you would teach us to love you, teach us to open ourselves more to you, teach us to trust in you to place our confidence fully in you. I pray for my friends who are here tonight, who, uh, folks that I, I know for certain who are uh, burdened with heaviness even as we speak, who, who were confronted with the hevel of life um, just this week. And I pray for you to strengthen them and for, for, for uh, your Holy Spirit to be near to them and to comfort them. And we pray that we would be a people who cast ourselves upon you in confidence and trust. And though we may see and find ourselves marveling and amazed at all sorts of evils in the world, we pray that we would, that we would marvel and that we would fear and that we would rest in you. I pray uh, tonight for any who are here who have not yet turned and repented and trusted in Jesus. I pray that through the life of our body, they would see the, the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd be magnified in all that we say and do. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name.